everyone. I'm Hope Morgenstern, and I'm one of the chairs of the Central Programming Committee, along with Hallie Harness. About four months ago, Hallie and I received an email from our advisor informing us that Dustin Lance Black, the Academy Award-winning screenwriter of the film Milk, was doing a speaking tour. We knew we wanted to bring him right away. Lance shares much of what is core to CC, including valuing all people and to seek to learn from their diverse experiences and perspectives. I am so thrilled tonight to introduce the man who boldly chose to write a film about the heroic figure Harvey Milk. In a time where the fight for equality was being eroded, Dustin Lance Black wrote a film that reminded us not only why we're fighting, but how to fight. He wove together a story that we all knew, yet left us on the edge of our seat. We worry that Prop 6 is actually going to pass. We scream at Anita Bryant, John Briggs, and their anti-gay forces. We don't quite believe that Dan White is going to shoot Harvey Milk up until the moment that he does. We tear up during the candlelight vigil and long after it ends. Lance created a film from a story we already know from history and made it personal. It is a testament to his ability as a writer that he could write about an icon and in doing so become an icon himself. We are lucky to have Lance as a storyteller this evening. On that note, please welcome Academy Award-winning screenwriter, Dustin Lance Black. Can you guys hear me? Can you hear me? Is it fun? Yeah, you can hear me. Wow, that's really weird. I can't see anybody. It's like little, yeah, silhouettes. But uh, thank you so much for having me here and bringing me to Colorado Springs. It's, you know, been a long dream of mine to come here and maybe get to tour or focus on the family. Thought maybe I could extend my trip a bit and see if they'll let me in. No, uh, seriously. Uh, for those of you I haven't met, um, my name is Dustin Lance Black, but my friends and family all call me Lance, so please feel free to do the same. Um, you know, when I was asked to come here and speak on uh, the intersection of the LGBT rights movement and my work in film and media, I took that as such a huge, huge compliment. Um, yeah, over the past eight years or so, I've produced some, you know, some TV and some film with some challenging content, and I've heard some people say that it helps produce, uh, you know, promote understanding. And, uh, and I really, really, really hope it does. And I'll tell you why. Because I think without film, for me, without being able to use the media, I don't think I'd be able to address the issues that are so incredibly important to me. And that's because the truth is, I'm not a natural-born leader, not in the least. I have horrible posture and uh, a really quiet voice, and I promise you, I will be sweaty and shaking by the end of this, I promise you. Every time I call my mom and I say, hey, guess what I'm going to do? I'm gonna do a speech here, a rally there. She says, Lance, how the hell did you find yourself in a leadership position in a civil rights struggle? Because she knows. My mom knows me, our moms know us. And my mom is the one who took me to my first class when I was in kindergarten. She took me to school, and I walked in. I was already scared. And, uh, and she dropped me off, and I saw all the other kids 
coloring inside the lines like they do. And I sat in on my very first panic attack. I, I could not be around people. I was so scared. And I was sent to the principal's office. And I spent my first two years of school in that principal's office. And, uh, and I followed around day after day. And she is what I imagined a leader to be. She was tough. She was disciplined. She had huge Texas hair, right? <laughs> yeah. And she walked around the school. And I would follow her. And she had one of those paddles with the holes drilled in it. They make that horrible swishing sound before it hits the kid in the ass. And I watched that for two years. And I thought, yeah, this is what a real leader is. <laughs> right? And I watched her. I watched her and watched her and thought, you know, she doesn't take lip from anyone. She rules by fear. And I knew from the very moment I saw her, I didn't have it in me to ever, ever be anything like her. You see, I, I grew up in this Mormon military family way out in San Antonio, Texas, right? So that means a few of the words that I heard, the first words I heard about who I might have been were unholy, unworthy, unnatural. And then there was this really long word, this really long word that they like to use in church on Sundays, and it went like this, homosexuality. And they used it like this, homosexuality is sin. Next to the crime of murder comes the sin of sexual impurity. Now, I was five years old when I first heard that beamed in to my church out in San Antonio from one of the top leaders in the Mormon church out in Salt Lake City. And I thought, well, God damn, that sounds exciting. <laughs> right? I, I had, <laughs> but I had, no, I had no idea what it meant. It's just I knew I was a future writer, and it was a big new word. And it was, you know, no surprise I was drawn to big new words. Now, stack up growing up in the military in Texas, and I also picked up a few other colorful ones like faggot, cocksucker, gaywad, homo, fairy, pansy, and turd burglar. The military ones were always far more colorful than the Mormon ones, but I still had no clue what they meant. And on one Sunday that I will never forget, uh, one of those words slipped out of my mouth as I was surrounded by a group of good, upstanding Mormon women, and you could hear a pin drop. And the lecture that followed was quite a revelation for a five-year-old. I mean, I had no idea anyone stuck anything inside of anyone else, much less what they described. And it quickly became apparent from the looks on their faces that this homo club wasn't the club for the cool kids, and they put the fear of God in me if I ever, ever said it again or went there. So then a year later, right? A year later, ripe old age of six. And I'm sitting there and on my street, and I'm watching my neighbor this kid, older kid, and uh, he's walking away with this toy car of mine. He just stole it. And, uh, and I knew we were broke. We were so poor. So I knew there'd be no replacing this car. And, uh, and my heart started to race. And I stopped breathing through my nose. And I stopped breathing altogether. And it wasn't because I wanted to beat him up. It's because I had a crush on him. <laughs> and I wanted to kiss him. And how dare he do this to me? And it was at that moment, that moment I knew that all of those wicked words, every single one of them, was about me. That I was right down there with all those sinners and those murderers and those rapists, all three foot four of me at six years old. I knew I was going to hell. I knew God did not love me. And I knew that if anyone ever found out, not only would I bring great shame to myself, but I'd bring great shame to my family. And guess what? Just to make things more complicated, at that very same instant, that very same instant, without knowing it at all, I also got mixed up with every one of this nation's political leaders. Little six-year-old Lance became a pawn 
a pawn, that's right, in a, a pawn in a game of political power wrangling that's still going on, that's still shedding blood. It's shedding blood from D.C. to Sacramento and certainly shedding blood right here in Colorado Springs. And it all started many, many, many years ago, way out in Miami-Dade County back in June 7th, 1977, and all these news cameras started to gather on that day. And the nation was waiting for this well-coiffed, well-spoken beauty pageant runner-up. And we're not talking about Sarah Palin. We're talking about Anita Bryant. And she was winning. If you remember, she was winning, and she was attractive and well-spoken. Everyone thought, this is a natural-born leader. And that night on national TV, she gave birth to the anti-gay religious right with these words. She said, tonight, the laws of God and the cultural values of man have been vindicated. The people of Dade County, the normal majority, have said enough, enough, enough. And with that, Anita Bryant and her Save the Children campaign had just struck down the very first laws in this country protecting gay and lesbian people from discrimination. And you know what? To most people, to many people, she was a national hero for that. She was the new leader, the brand new leader of the hottest cause in this country. And it, just, it wasn't just conservatives jumping in with their own anti-gay quotes. It was also people from the left because this issue was new. It was hot. And most importantly, voters were showing up for it in droves. So politically, right, politically and religiously, I had heard the voice of my leaders. There's some noise coming from right over there. Is everything okay? Um, but that voice of my leader, of both of those leaders, was saying I was either less than or I was going to hell, and I was doomed to that. So I had two choices. One was to hide and to go on a Mormon mission, to get married, and to have a small Mormon family of 20 or 30 or 40 kids. <laughs> or I could do what I thought about constantly, and that was to take my own life. And that should come as absolutely no surprise, right? Even today, LGBT kids are four times more likely to attempt suicide than their straight brothers and sisters, and nine times more likely if they come from unaccepting environments. I'm telling you, time and again, the religious right has said, the religious right from Anita Bryant's time to focus on the family to Mr. Dobson and Mr. Daly have said that gay and lesbian people threaten their families and their children, but we know the truth. The truth is their homophobic words and their hateful language are literally costing America's children their lives, literally. But for me, thankfully, there are not enough pills in a Mormon mother's medicine cabinet to do that job. So... So I pretended and I hid and I did what a lot of kids do and I tried not to excel. I tried not to stick out at school or to make waves and I decided like so many that hope was simply delayed disappointment and that happiness was something for other people and happiness was merely a fading dream. And looking back now, it's clear why. The leaders I grew up with led with fear. I had that principal with her paddle I had the leaders in government telling me I was less than the other kids and the leaders in my church telling me I was going to hell, right? But my story doesn't end like that. One day, I come like 13, almost 14 years old, I come home from school. My mom says, you know, I've 
met a very handsome young man, uh, very young actually, and he's Catholic. So I already, you know, I was like, mother, you're going to hell. That's not possible. And, and he had orders to ship out to California. So at the age of 13, my mom and my two brothers and my new uh, Catholic stepdad, we packed up and we fled the Mormon church and we fled Texas and we settled down in Salinas, California. And uh, my mom, you know, now I think for the first time in her life, she was very happy. She was very happy outside of the Mormon church. And she had a new goal. Her new goal was I'm going to cure my middle son of his shyness problem. And, uh, and she sat in on doing that, and she said, well, I think the way to do it is to put him in theater classes, right? <laughs> uh, right. I don't know what she thought drama club was all about. Not usually the most butch club on campus. So, <laughs> yeah. So not surprisingly, I liked it. I liked it a lot. And uh, within two years, I found myself up in the professional theater world in San Francisco and Monterey, and somewhere around the summer of 1988, something very special happened. Um, one of the teachers there gathered a group of us together, and he forever changed my view of what a true leader is. Now, I don't know if somebody in that group, because it was a young apprenticeship group, I don't know if somebody in that group had said something homophobic, or he just saw me and thought maybe I needed to hear what he had to say. But he told us this story, and it was the story of an out gay man. And I was horrified. I thought, my God, does he know? Does he know about me? And what the hell is an out gay man? We certainly didn't have those in Texas. And uh, I thought, this must be someone really asking for trouble if they're an out gay man. But that's not the way this story went. Not at all. He played us an audio recording of this man. And it was delivered uh, exact, a decade earlier, on June 9th, 1978. The week my biological father had moved my family out to San Antonio, Texas. I want to read you a small piece of that speech. It goes like this. Somewhere in Des Moines or San Antonio, there is a young gay person who all of a sudden realizes he or she is gay. Knows that if the parent finds out, they'll be tossed out of the house. The classmates will taunt the child, and the Anita Bryants and John Briggs are doing their bit on TV, and that child has several options. Staying in the closet, suicide, and then one day that child might open up the paper and it says homosexual elected in San Francisco and there are two new options. One is to go to California or stay in San Antonio and fight. You've got to elect gay people so that that young child and the thousands upon thousands like that child know there's hope for a better world. There is hope for a better tomorrow. And that speech was given by Mr. Harvey Milk. And I was almost 14 when I heard that for the first time. And almost unlike every other leader I'd ever heard in my life, he was not leading with fear. He was leading with hope. Hope for a better world. And for the first time in my life, his brand of hope included me. And let me put that in context for you. When Harvey first came out, when he first started running for office and said, I am equal, he wasn't fighting for marriage rights or access to the military and all the things we were fighting for today. He was literally fighting for his life. You have to understand that out in California, even at the time, it was a felony to be gay. And mainstream psychology at the time still classified homosexuality as a mental disease. So when he came out and he started to lead, he did so knowing he'd be labeled a felon and a madman. And I think that's awfully, awfully brave. But hero worship is one thing, right? 
Why go and do a movie about the guy? I guess that's the question tonight. Why make these movies? Why tell socially sort of activist movies? Let's be honest. In Hollywood, if you go into a room and you start pitching like a personal movie uh, or a, a progressive movie, especially a political film, I'm telling you, that is death. That is death for your career. And my career was doing just fine five years ago. I don't know what I was thinking. I was on an HBO show. I was, you know, making good money, steady job. And making things worse is there had been this other project out there for, since like 1988, this other project that these producers, some really powerful producers, were trying to get made on Harvey Milk. And they had the lock on it. And one of the biggest studios was involved. So I thought, all right, well, I'm just a little baby writer at the time. I thought, I got to do the right thing. So I tried getting their job. And I went into their offices. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I went in their offices and I said, oh, I, you know, I want to have this job. And they said, buzz off. And I thought, okay, that's fair. And I pushed harder and I started driving from the set of Big Love up to San Francisco every weekend and, uh, and knocking on doors. And, you know, finally some of, I met some of Harvey's people, Cleve Jones. I think Cleve Jones spoke here. Were people here when he spoke here? Don't compare me to him. He's like the best speaker in the world. Um, <laughs> But he actually is the guy who finally introduced me to so many of these people, and I got their stories, and it took many years, and I put together an outline. I went back to those big-time producers, and I said, now I got it. I got an outline, and I pitched it to them, and they said, no, you know, I'm sorry. It was really good, but uh, the truth is, is we're looking for a writer with an Academy Award. So thank you, Harvey, for filling that giant hole in my resume. <laughs> All right, so why did I go head-to-head -head with Warner Brothers, right? Why did I go head-to-head -head with them five years ago and risk my career? And I say it's because even the years leading up to that, I didn't feel like things were going so well. Not for gay and lesbian people, not for minorities of a lot of different sorts. And I'll give you one example of that. Back in 2008, I tuned into the Democratic National Convention. And what did I hear about gay and lesbian people? Not a lot. Our president, President Obama, stumbled over a single sentence about our gay brothers and sisters and hospital visitation rights. There's no sign that LGBT rights had a real home in the Democratic platform. And then there was the Republican National Convention with Sarah Palin and John McCain and all those patriotic, flashy speeches, right? All right, did anybody hear what they said about gay and lesbian people? No. And that actually scared the hell out of me. Because I thought, you know, they found the sure way to kill the gay and lesbian movement. They'll simply make us invisible. The Republican Party's done it before with eight years of silence and the AIDS crisis. You see, one of the biggest challenges for the gay and lesbian community has always been visibility. So many, so many gay and lesbian people are not immediately identifiable. Most of my gay and lesbian friends are immediately identifiable, <laughs> but there's so many who aren't. And so they're not counted. And so watching those conventions, I got a sinking feeling that the gay and lesbian movement was off the table, and I felt myself slowly vanishing. And as we all know, for the gay and lesbian movement, invisibility equals death. And a month later, that proved very true. In November of 2008, things became very, very real. All right, I could have never predicted the parallels between Proposition 6 back in the 70s and Proposition 8 out in California exactly 30 years later. Does everyone know what Proposition 8 was. How about Proposition 6? For those of you who don't, both were statewide initiatives to take away, right, take away rights from gay, lesbian people in California. Now, when Harvey started fighting Proposition, I'm going to get them mixed up every time, 6, 
in California, he was behind 80% to 20%. 80% of the people in California said, yes, we should take the jobs away from all gay and lesbian people who are in public schools. That seemed fine. But you know what? Through coalition building with other minority communities, reaching out to the unions, women, racial minority groups that everyone said, Harvey, they'll never fight for us. They hate gay people. By urging people to be brave and to come out, through coming out, starting a movement of education and outreach by leading with hope and not fear, Harvey won his fight 60-40. But as you likely know in California, it didn't go that way at all. In fact, we started out ahead, and we ended up way behind. And, and you know what? Why does that scare me? Why do losses like that and that sort of backsliding in this movement, why does that scare me? Why is it not just devastating politically and socially? Why is it so much more dangerous than that? And I'll tell you why. Because I know there's a kid out there in San Antonio that was a lot like me. And I'm certain that there was a kid here in Colorado Springs that next morning. And they woke up and they heard that gay and lesbian people out in California had lost their rights. And now they've heard the same thing in Maine that we are still less than, we are still second-class citizens. And I know all too well the dire solutions that may have flashed through his or her head. So why Milk? I'll tell you why. Because I'd talk to my activist friends, and I'd say, do you know who Harvey Milk is? And they'd nod like they knew they were supposed to know who he was, but they absolutely didn't. And why is that incredibly dangerous? I'll tell you, because as the saying goes, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it, right? And that's what I think the gay and lesbian movement had been doing for decades at that point. Harvey's message was simple. Come out, represent yourself, and reach out to other minority groups. If you looked at Proposition 8 out in California this past, or two years ago now, you saw almost no gay or lesbian people in the ads, not a mention of it in the literature or the yard sign, and very little effort was made to reach out to other minority groups or to educate. So to me, it came as no surprise that we lost that fight because we had lost our history. So my great hope with Milk was that maybe, hopefully, we could revive his story and his philosophy, a successful philosophy, and hopefully also inspire a new generation to follow his lead. And I want to tell you what I think some of the most important parts of his lead were. I think probably the most vital piece of his philosophy is that Harvey Milk's work, it didn't start and stop with gay and lesbian people. It didn't start and stop with the gay and lesbian movement. He absolutely understood the interconnectedness of all minority groups. He understood that the LGBT rights movement was a much larger, completely interrelated civil rights struggle, and he's in really good company here. I want to quote uh, Coretta Scott King, and she said this. We have a lot more work to do in our common struggle against bigotry and discrimination. I say common struggle because I believe very strongly that all forms of bigotry and discrimination are equally wrong and should be opposed by right-thinking Americans everywhere. Freedom from discrimination based on sexual orientation is surely a fundamental right in any great democracy as much as freedom from racial, religious, gender, or ethnic discrimination. From the black civil rights movement, she could see that like race, our sexuality isn't a preference, it's not a choice, I didn't wake up at six years old and say, hey, I want to join one of the most loathed groups in America, right? No. Like race, sexual, sexual disposition is immutable and unchangeable. 
and our great constitution protects us all against prejudices and discriminations based on immutable differences. And Harvey Milk, we all can hear that, but he didn't just understand that interconnectedness. He felt this really genuine responsibility to it, right, to any group that he saw being treated unequally. So he fought hard in San Francisco when he got there for the seniors' communities, the disabled, the women's movement, the racial minority movements in San Francisco, the religious communities, and what he started to call all of the us's out there because he understood that gay and lesbian rights will never, will never be secure until all of our rights are secure. And that was perhaps his very most important message, that of the coalition of the us's. And I think it's so important today to talk about that. And this is where I get myself in trouble with the big mainstream groups. But sadly, to me, I think it seems that the corporate LGBT uh, groups, the big LGBT groups, have become myopic. We've become self-serving, working for gay rights exclusively, and that's a problem. And I firmly believe that it is time for the gay and lesbian movement to reach out again and work just as hard for our brothers and our sisters and other communities as we have for ourselves. It is time for the us's to come back together again and to start to work for each other again so that we can start to win these fights for each other again. I'm going to say a bad word here in a minute. So here we go. Uh, you know that this problem of isolationism, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a new thing. Harvey absolutely faced it in his time, absolutely faced it. And here's what he did. You know, Harvey was not a big drinker, not at all. In fact, he had one glass of champagne that people say he didn't finish the night he was finally elected. Um, but somewhere around early 1972 in San Francisco, he started opening all of his conversations, no matter who it was with, uh, with this joke. He said, why is drinking Coors beer like making love in a canoe? Anybody know the answer? Somebody else say it so I don't have to. It's like fucking near water is the way he would say it. <laughs> Sorry. I'm glad my mom's not here. You see, he, he started railing against Coors like it was to blame for every social injustice in the world. And the truth is, like me, he probably never had a sip of the stuff. And why? Because Coors beer refused refused uh, to pay a living wage. They refused to work with the unions in San Francisco. And the unions in San Francisco were trying to do this boycott, and it was getting zero traction until Harvey Milk came along and thought, well, you know, my gay brothers and sisters, we drink a lot of beer, so what can I do to help? And he got everyone in San Francisco to stop drinking Coors. He got it pulled out of all the gay bars in San Francisco, and that started to spread. And he got it pulled out of all the gay bars in Southern California and all the gay and lesbian people to stop drinking Coors there. And you know what happened? It pushed that boycott way over the edge, and Coors caved. And the next day, the head of that union came down to Harvey's camera shop and said, so thank you so much. What can we do? What can we do for you? And he said, nothing. Don't do anything. You know, we just did the right thing. You are our brothers. I share the city with you. And you know what they did? The very next day, they hired the first openly gay truck drivers in California. And that guy, I still talk to him. He still calls Harvey a fruit. <laughs> but he does what he calls him a fruit. He says, you know, that fruit shot straight. <laughs> Works. But here's the thing is 30 years later, over 30 years later now, 
gay and lesbian people in California have been taken to the streets, and we've been marching and protesting. And one of the most amazing sights is we end up shutting down these freeways and these major avenues, and you see the truck drivers stuck in that snarled traffic and all these gay people in our pink and whatnot and our signs saying gay rights now, marching past them, and they don't snarl and they don't give us ugly looks. Often, often they pull down their horns with this booming, wailing sign of solidarity. Because in California, at least, Harvey's very unexpected alliance is still alive and it's still well. And the unions still back gay and lesbian people. But I'm here to say that is not going to last. That is not going to last if gay and lesbian people keep looking out for themselves only. Gay and lesbian people have to start working for the workers as hard as we need, as hard as we must work for ourselves if we're going to keep that alliance. And I think, did that message get out, right? We're talking about how the movie might or might not influence people. And, you know, I've had little signs um, that maybe that message is getting out. I was out in Salt Lake City recently and, you know, there's really nowhere, I think, in the country uh, where gay and lesbian young people are up against such resistance um, as Salt Lake City in Utah. Actually, more Utah than Salt Lake City. And you know what those kids out there, I said, well, what are you fighting for? What do you want? And they said, we want the seniors vote. I'm like, well, that's damn brave. That's always <laughs> the hardest vote to get for gay and lesbian people. And I said, well, what are you, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're doing a lot of yelling and screaming in March. And I said, good, good. What else are you doing? And they said, we formed a group, and this is what they do. On snow days, which is, there's a lot of, they get dressed up in their rainbow t-shirts and their gayest of gay buttons, and they take their shovels and they go down to the retirement homes and the seniors' homes and they shovel their driveways. Yeah. And when the old people come out and say, hey, what do you want? Uh, they say nothing, that they just want to be recognized as a part of that community. And that's the work that they need to be doing to earn that right. But I'm not going to pretend like any of this is easy, not in activism, not in writing scripts. It's all really scary, and it's all really hard. And that takes me to my next big point. It's the thing I found to be universally true in activism, in my work. And if, it's your, if you're going to lead, if you're going to take a chance on anything, you cannot be afraid to fight, to fight for that change you feel is true or that truth that you've come to know. And I'm not alone here. I'm going to quote someone who I was very privileged to have met over the past couple of years. He's a hero of mine and a founding leader in the black civil rights movement. His name is Julian Bond. Um, does anybody know who Julian Bond is? Yeah, I feel the same. And he said to me, he said, Lance, good things do not come to those who wait. They come to those who agitate. And that brings me to my story about my adventures this past fall in Holland, Michigan. Does anybody know where Holland, Michigan is? Yeah. Love Holland. I actually really loved Holland, Michigan. It's West Michigan. I was about to, I, you know, I had to start directing my, this movie, and it was my follow-up to Milk. I was like, I got to move on from Milk. Clearly, I'm not succeeding at that. I'm still talking about Milk. But I had to direct this, I had to direct this film on Milk, and, and it was the perfect location. It's beautiful there. It's right against the water, and I had to cheat Michigan as, uh, as Virginia. And I'm driving, you know, around uh, town, and I, I, I'm on College Avenue, and, and I look to my right, and there's this sign for college called Hope College. And I went, oh, wow, that's Harvey again, haunting me with his favorite word, hope. And I knew, I knew what I was getting into. I've been told several times already that Holland, Michigan was the second most conservative voting district in the country. I wonder what's the first. <laughs> 
<laughs> but that was fine. That was fine. I mean, so I so I drove on and I found the one the one coffee shop for all the heathens. It was open till midnight, and uh, and I I walked in and it was actually filled with a lot of really neatly combed blonde. Uh, you, you know, preppy-looking, well-spoken Hope College students. It reminded me a lot of being in the Mormon church as a kid. And, uh, and I settled in with my laptop, and I got to work, and I, I felt eyes on me. And I looked up, and there was this young man sitting there with cut-off short shorts. It was already way too cold to be wearing, and a legalized gay T-shirt. And he stuck out like a sore thumb, and I thought, okay, there goes my anonymity. And... Uh, Within five minutes, he was at my table, and he says, you know, I'm part of the English department at Hope College, and we'd be honored if you would screen milk, and you'd come and speak. And I said, that sounds fantastic. I'm going to be here for months and months. I should chip in. And uh, months went by. I'm shooting. I'm like, what the hell ever happened to that speaking date? They never confirmed. And I walk into this coffee shop, that same coffee shop, and I'm met with this headline. It says, filmmaker receives mixed welcome from Hope. I was like, well, I didn't know that. (laughs) And it said, I had been banned. I'd been banned from screening milk and was officially not welcome to set foot on Hope College's campus. The dean of students there, he was not shy. He was not shy with the press. And he quickly labeled my brand of activism as hurtful to the student body. And without a call, without ever meeting me, he very, very publicly uh, deemed me and milk unholy and unwelcome. And he kept right on talking, and the press started to build, and I was getting phone calls from newspapers, and um, the students started to protest, and I won't lie, I might have told them that was a good idea. And, <laughs> but I started getting these strange looks over the breakfast counter when I'm eating my hash brown omelet, which is a real thing in Holland, Michigan, omelet, no eggs, just hash browns and cheese. And uh, <laughs> delicious, really good. Anyway, I could have just gotten the job done, right? I could have just gotten the job done and, and gone home. And, uh, and, but I thought, you know, I didn't believe this town was really homophobic. That was my belief. I thought, you know what, I, I know no one talks about it here, and maybe that's the problem. So I thought, we got to do something. It might be time to agitate. And I called up that kid with those short shorts and legalized gay T-shirt, and I said, what are we going to do? And he's like, I don't want to take no for an answer either. And, uh, and we got together, and we formed a group called Hope is Ready. And you know what? We went out to the most conservative, wealthy folks in town, and we said, we need some money. We want to rent a theater. We want to do this on our own, right next to Hope College. And you know what? For the first time, I think for any of these guys, they opened up their wallet. And in the face of Hope College's homophobia, they gave money and put their quiet courtesy aside. And that theater sold out in one hour. And so we rented a second theater. <laughs> and it sold out in one hour. And I remember being nervous about when the lights came up, who showed up, who was there. When the lights came up, it was almost all Hope College faculty and students. And it wasn't just gay people. In fact, I don't think there were very many gay people at all, but what there were were a lot of minorities, which you don't see a lot of in West Michigan, a lot of minorities. And at the Q&A, They took that opportunity not to ask questions, but they stood up and they started telling their stories about their own challenges of being different in this town and being different in this area. And it was one of the most amazing nights of my life because it was like being transported back to the 70s in San Francisco. You saw that coalition building going on right there, minority groups relating to each other, gay people saying, I got you. I know what it's like to feel stared at to the Latino woman who's the only Latino woman in her neighborhood. And I thought, you know what? 
Holland, Michigan is really, really behind when it comes to LGBT rights. But that night, the lid was lifted. And I don't think you could have found a single student or person in there who would have found uh, our brand, mine and Milk's brand of advocacy, uh, anyhow offensive or harmful. And thankfully, the newspapers the next day said the same thing. So the next morning, I'm packing up to go. I'm like, I got to get out of here. And, uh, <laughs> and that dean of Hope College, he, he actually called me up. I, this is the first time I ever heard his voice. And he said, as long as no one witnesses it, he was willing to meet with me. <laughs> get your minds out of the gutter. He didn't go there. <laughs> no, and I thought, but I thought, you know what the truth is without this guy? It probably would have been this really small little screening of 10 students, who knows, and no one would have ever talked about it. It wouldn't have been a big deal. So I felt like, I owe this guy. You know, the whole, anyone interested in diversity in that area owes this guy. So I said, yeah, absolutely, I'd love to meet. And we finally sat down uh, and started talking, and it was rather friendly. Uh, what he struck me was that he immediately began referring to me as you people. And I asked him to clarify, and he said, hesitantly, you gay people. And I said, okay, fair enough. And I asked him, could you please just get to know gay and lesbian people individually first, you know, because that's stereotyping. And I think he heard me, and he nodded his head. But then that phrase popped out again, and he said, you people. I said, all right, well, what do you mean now? Is it gay people again? And he said, no, 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 I mean Hollywood people. And I said, oh, all right. You know, but we're also a very diverse bunch. And then it popped out a third time, and I said, okay, is this Hollywood people or is this gay people? And he said, no, 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 I mean California people. <laughs> and then I said, well, you kind of got a point. And I, <laughs> I assured him I now knew live in New York. Um, no, but seriously, it was crystal clear that the problem wasn't gay people or Hollywood people or California people at all, right? The problem was a fear of other people, of people from different worlds, of people with different viewpoints, and I was reminded of Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk always claimed that the war against homophobia was a war against fear, against fear of the unknown, against fear is of what is different, fear against that thing we've never really met or come to know. And you know what? That's where the fight for LGBT rights is right now in this country, right now. You're lucky, really lucky in Colorado, because you have a statewide equal protection law that most of this country and most of the people in this country do not have that. And they don't have the freedom to live authentically as who they are. And I often think, you know, people hear us talking about equal protection for jobs and housing, and they go, why are they so worried about it, these gay and lesbian people? And, I, and I, I, I want to tell you why I think it's so incredibly important and why I think it's the first step. And that's because I think that LGBT people must have the freedom to come out. They must have the freedom to live openly and authentically as who they are, as who God made them, without the fear of losing their job and their home. And why does that step have to come first? Why does that have to come before anything, before we can even get marriage in this country? Because the greatest tool we have as gay and lesbian people in this fight for full equality is our own story. And we've got to feel free to share it without repercussion. It's the only way historically gay and lesbian people have been able to dispel the myths and the fears and the lies that so many of this country still hold, that clearly the Dean of Hope College still holds, that the folks that focus on the family still spread. Those myths and those lies and those fears that have plagued my people and plagued 
this country for generations now. That is why it is so vitally important that we pass LGBT non-discrimination legislation federally, nationwide, so that we have protections for everyone, even for those kids out in Holland, Michigan. Because you know what happened right after I left Holland, Michigan? There was this young student. His name was Ryan Endy, um, and he graduated in 2009, right when I left, um, from Western Theological Seminary. And that's attached to Hope College. It's a part of Hope College. And he applied for ordination, just like any student would apply for ordination. And he was denied because he refused to sign a celibacy statement. Now understand, no straight student is forced to sign a celibacy statement. He was forced to sign it because he was openly gay, and he refused. And on Christmas Eve, he was found dead. He had taken his own life. And that must stop. That must stop right now. We have to have non-discrimination legislation immediately so we can continue the work of dispelling those myths and lies and fears that ruin young people's lives. And you got a lot of power here in Colorado, I'll tell you. You can do something about it. You guys can safely tell your stories. Or if you have gay and lesbian relatives, you can safely pass along theirs. And most importantly, you got nine federal representatives out there in Washington, D.C., and they got a bill called ENDA. And if we can get that voted on and passed this year, we'll have protection for every single gay and lesbian kid across this country. So please do me a favor. When you leave here, make some phone calls, badger them, and agitate those federal representatives for me, will you? All right, I know, I, I often uh, get told that I sound a little bit idealistic. <laughs> and it's true, because I am. And people often say, you know, Lance, you gotta slow down, you gotta quiet down, you can't ask for federal rights, full federal equality, are you kidding me? Uh, and, I, and I say, yeah, but we gotta have that right now. And they say, no way, maybe you can get something like that. Maybe Colorado, you can get equal protections, or Massachusetts marriage. Uh, but you definitely can't get marriage in Colorado. And you definitely can't get equal protections nationally. And when I hear that crap, a Harvey Milk quote leaps to my mind. It's from his first run from public office. It was 1973, and he was out. And most gay people thought that was even too radical. And they said, you've got to quiet down or you're going to create a backlash. And he said to them, masturbation can be fun, but it does not take the place of the real thing. It is about time for the gay community to stop playing with itself and get down to the real thing. <laughs> there are people who are satisfied with crumbs because that is all they think they can get, when in reality, if they demand the real thing, they will find that they indeed can get it. You see, I believe in him. I believe we've got to be brave enough to demand what we know we deserve and brave enough to do the work we know we have to do to achieve it. And so, the past few years, despite my fear, absolute fear of public speaking, my fear of crowds, I challenge myself to follow in Harvey's footsteps, both in my creative work and in my activist work. And I'd say last October was the culmination. I had the privilege of leading over 150,000 uh, people, gay and straight, black, brown, white, all of them to the steps of the US Capitol to demand their full freedom. 
And following in the footsteps of my mentor, I took a deep breath and I demanded what I thought was right. I demanded what I thought any gay and lesbian kid out there wanted to hear. It was a dream of full federal equality now. And it was scary and I have caught hell for it. And it was about the best thing I've ever done in my life. And I'd love, love to take a moment and share that dream with you today. Because I'm not sure any dream can become reality if you don't share it, huh? So my dream sounds like this. We the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered people of America demand that the promise of our Constitution and Declaration of Independence be honored. We demand that the federal government act immediately, decisively, and unequivocally to ensure equal protection under the law for LGBT people throughout the United States of America, full and equal federal rights. You see, LGBT people have always been willing to serve our country and our armed forces even as we were threatened with court-martials and dishonor as teachers, even as we were slandered and libeled as parents and foster parents struggling to raise our children in this country and as doctors and nurses, we've always served and loved our country. We have loved our country even as we've been dis subjected to discrimination, harassment, and violence at the hands of our own countrymen. And we have loved God even as we were rejected and abandoned by our religious leaders, our churches, in our synagogues, and our mosques. We have loved democracy, even as we witnessed that ballot box, that very ballot box used to deny us our rights. But you see, gay and lesbian people, we have never in that long history abandoned hope in the American dream of equality and freedom. We never stop believing that the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the Constitution actually include us. We have always kept faith, always kept faith with the American people, with our neighbors and coworkers and all of our friends and families. But today, I think that faith is tested. And we are at a crossroads in history. I'm telling you, I think this is the civil rights fight of your generation. I think this is the civil rights fight of the 21st century. And I ask you this. Will we all, gay and straight, all of us, move forward together? Will we affirm that the American dream is alive and real for all Americans? Or will we surrender to those worst, most divisive appeals to bigotry and ignorance and fear. And I say that I know in my heart that we will not. I have more faith in the American people than that. And I have absolute faith in this country's long, long tradition of spreading freedom. But it will not, it will not come to those of us, to those of us who wait. And I know that if I want to see my dream and my dream is of this diverse, inclusive community, this, this, this dream of full equality. If I want to see that realized, I must plunge into the unknown. I know I have to use all of the skills I have to continue to tell the stories that shed new light, that humanize and unite us. I must reach out to other communities, and when necessary, I must agitate. Now, that's my dream. That's what I got to do. That's my passion. Now, what's yours? What are you going to do? What are you going to do right here in Colorado to build bridges to other communities, to reach out and to educate? And most importantly, what of yourself are you going to share to make those bridges a reality? What are you going to share of yourself to build those bridges? And I challenge you not to think small, but to dream and to dream big. Do not follow quietly, but you got to ask questions. You got to challenge assumptions and challenge the status quo, and you got to agitate when necessary. And in the spirit of Milk and Chavez and King, I beg you, 
to make Colorado the model of equality, inclusion, and freedom. Thank you very much. Thank you.